who are new with us, we take time uh, during the middle of our service uh, to review one belief that we hold as Christians each week and talk a little bit about how that changes the way we live as Christians. And so we have these uh, called table talks, which you can take home with you and as a family or as a group discuss in more detail. How does this simple truth that we hold change us and change how we live? And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been asking the question because we've been going through it all year. And the question is, okay, so now that I know all this, how should I live, right? In other words, all of this knowledge, how do I put it into action? Uh, and so this week, one part of the answer to that question is this, that how should we then live? So the Christian life is fueled by a rhythm of prayer and scriptural intake. In other words, spiritual breathing. And I use that image because I think it describes it well. It's actually interesting. I was a, a personal trainer for a couple of years. And one of the first things I have to teach almost every single client while we were lifting weights is how to breathe. And of course, the client's like, I'm paying this guy how much to sit here and tell me how to breathe? I think I've had that, right? I think I knew how to do that as a baby. But as it turns out, when you put your body into stress and you try to lift heavy weights, it's like it stops breathing and it becomes a whole lot easier to lift a heavy object if you are actually breathing through it. It's amazing. Clients are like, I think I'm breathing. I think I know how to do this. But when we go and practice it, they're like, oh, this became so much easier. It turns out oxygen does that, right? It makes, makes lifting heavy objects far, far simpler. Well, in the Christian life, it is very similar. Uh, the scriptural intake and prayer is like spiritual breathing. We take in God's word and what he has for us through his scripture, through the Bible, and we breathe out the waste. We breathe out our sin, our desires, our longings, our hopes and dreams and fears out to God. And this isn't, uh, this isn't the advanced stuff. Like if you're training for, for a sport, this isn't, the, this isn't going to win you the tournament by itself, right? But without it, it is going to make you, it's going to make you very tired very quickly and unable to compete. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. When we're going through stress, this is sometimes the thing that we let go of. And yet what we'll find is we're exhausted, we're tired, our, our sinful self starts to come out and we wonder why. And it's because we've lost the basics, the spiritual breathing. So I encourage you to take this home with you to talk about a little bit more as a family and what it looks like to develop this as a rhythm in your own life. Um, but if you are one of the younger uh, church members with us today, third grade or younger, Mr. Tony is going to be leading uh, Children's Church today. So if you would join him in the back, that'd be great. And we didn't give time today yet to greet each other. So why don't you stand up, greet people around you. If someone's new, introduce yourself for a little bit and we will begin our, our sermon for today.
All right. Okay, as you're finding your seat, we're going to be in Matthew 25. Okay, so we are in Matthew 25 today. For uh, the last couple months, we've been doing a sermon series on the parables of Jesus, and this is our last one. Uh, and the last in uh, this week, in the last two weeks, we've been in the same chapter going over these parables about, okay, Jesus is going to return. How do you prepare for when he comes again? And with all of Jesus's parables, it turns out when he taught in his lifetime, he often taught in parables. And they ask him, why do you teach in parables? And his answer seems strange. It's because if I spoke plainly, then they would hear and repent. And, and, and you wonder, well, isn't that a good thing? Uh, but Jesus spoke in parables, and it turns out sometimes the Bible is written in such a way that if you just read it quickly, what it's actually saying doesn't quite come to you. You have to stop, and you have to read it slowly and carefully, and the Bible is actually intentional about that. You see, uh, uh, it, it causes us to slow down, to read the word carefully, to read it deeply. And then when you do that, it is not just you reading the Bible, but the Bible begins to read you. Now, that, that sounds cool and a nice preacher thing to say, but what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is when you start to read the Bible slowly, it starts to poke at some of your hidden and sinful assumptions and desires and longings, and it begins to draw that out in the open and to show you how harmful they actually are. And so the Bible begins, so in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the Bible becomes like a scalpel in the hands of a skillful surgeon. It cuts away at those sinful, diseased parts of your life and clears the way for, for fresh and healthy growth come about. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this uh, parable of Jesus, and we're going to look at it carefully. Uh, and we have to look at it carefully because this uh, parable is actually very tricky. When first reading what this parable looks like is that Jesus is saying, when it comes to the last judgment where Jesus judges it, who is going to spend eternity with him and who's going to spend eternity being punished for the evil and how. It looks like on the surface what he's saying is it's going to depend on how you treated others. In other words, if you treated others good, then you've earned a place in heaven. And if you treated others poorly, you've earned a place in hell. Now, if you are a Christian, this becomes a problem because what we believe is that all human beings have sinned. In other words, we have committed evil against God and against each other. And if this were the basis for our judgment, none of us get to be the sheep, right? We're going to see sheep and goats. None of us get to experience eternal reward because no matter how much good we've done, even the good deeds we've done at best are filled with selfishness, right? So this is, this is a deep, deep problem. How can this be? Uh, uh, how, because we believe, as Christians, that we are not saved by our works, because we can't be. Our works aren't good enough. 
Instead, we are saved because Jesus, the Son of God, became a human being. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He took the punishment for our evil actions on himself, even though we didn't deserve it. And in turn, he gave us his perfect life to put on ourselves. And then he died in our place. Three days later, he rose again to give us a new life. That's the gospel. That's the basic of Christian teaching. So how do we interpret this sermon and still hold on to that basic part of Christianity? And that's what we're going to read together. But for now, I want to invite you to stand as I read the scripture. We are in Matthew 25, and we're going to begin with verse 31. So this is what it says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal Father, I pray that you show us clearly from your word what you would have for us. I pray that we would take seriously the words of Jesus here and that the Holy Spirit would, like a scalpel, use this word to cut away at the sin in our lives, lead us to repentance so that we might find healing in the grace that you are offering. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So what I want to do is I want to go with you through this passage of Scripture, and I want us to look very closely. You see, the Scripture is just so full of important details, and it causes you, when you're reading it, to slow down and to take notice. And I want to notice some of these things with you so that we can come back and say, okay, now that I've seen all that Jesus is saying clearly, what is he actually saying here? And it begins right at the beginning. So if we look again at verse 31, it begins this way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, if you have not read through the Bible multiple times, this verse might have just went over your head a little bit. But Jesus often in the Gospels refers to himself as the Son of 
man. And it's interesting, right? You think, oh, Jesus, the Son of God, that's, that's what we know him by. But he often refers to himself as the Son of Man. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, it turns out if you're reading through the Old Testament, especially Daniel, there's this prophecy, this prophecy of this human figure that is also a divine figure that shows up and he is the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. This is prophesied all the way back in Daniel. And so when Jesus uses this term, the Son of Man, it's interesting because the reaction oftentimes from the Pharisees is for them to get incredibly angry. And we're like, are you angry? Isn't he just calling himself a human? Well, no. Actually, what Jesus is pointing out here is he goes, hey, you know in Daniel, that weird figure who was a human being but also seemed to be God at the same time? That's me, right? This is a claim at divinity. Jesus is saying, I am that figure. I am God. So the beginning of this parable is this claim of God showing up in his glory, escorted by his angels. In other words, God showing up with his army, and he sits on his throne in all his glory. Why does it begin this way? Because what we're about to talk about is the judgment of every single human being who ever has existed and ever will exist. There the reason in the New Testament, you often have heard the, uh, the verse, I'm sure, that to don't judge lest you be judged. The reason we as human beings are told not to judge is because there's only one person, only one human being with the authority to judge every other human being, and that is this one right here. And he is about to do that. Right? Oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think of the grace that he comes to offer, the loving Jesus who loves us so much he died for us and offered us grace. And that is so true and important and you can't lose hold of that. But sometimes in the emphasis on grace, we also forget that this is God himself who will judge human beings for the evils they have committed. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Right? Jesus is the same God who brought judgment in all of the Old Testament versions, and the same God at the end of the Bible who will bring judgment against evil. And that's what he's doing here. He is sitting down on his throne with all of his glory, with all of his authority, and he is about to judge every human being for everything that they have done. All right, that's how it begins. All right, And then it begins, okay, this is how the judgment is going to happen. Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. I want to pause here again because as Christians, if, if you have grown up as a Christian, this verse is not shocking to you. If, however, you are a first century Jew when Jesus is first teaching this, this might sound strange. Because what Jesus just said there is at the judgment, every single nation will be there. And that part, I understand. Okay, great. God's going to judge all the nations. He's going to rescue his chosen people, Israel, and he's going to condemn the rest for how they've treated Israel. That's what you're thinking. But then Jesus says he's going to separate all the people into two groups, the sheep and the goats. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying that the sheep are the people of Israel and the goats are everyone else. What he's not saying is that you get to have eternal reward because of who your bloodline is, because of your genetics, because of your culture. All right? He's saying something else judges whether you are a sheep 
are a goat, which is good news for us who are not Jewish people, by the way. Are you going to be included? But it's more important, too. For those of uh, today, it, it can be a common thing for people to grow up and say, well, my parents were Christian and my great-grandparents were Christian, my great-grandparents were Christian, therefore I'm a Christian, right? Well, what the Bible actually teaches about that is that may be true, but that's not why you're a Christian. You don't just inherit it because your parents were Christians. Something else has to happen. Every person individually is judged based on something that we're coming up and we're going to see, right? So that's the first thing I wanted to point out. That's incredibly important. Then we keep going. He places the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There are two types of people. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. There's a sheep who gets eternal reward and a goat who gets eternal punishment. Then it says in verse 34, then the king, once again, emphasizing Jesus' authority to judge, which he's about to do, will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's so much in this one verse to unpack. But I want to point out as we're reading this, what does this say about God? Well, the first thing it says about God, as Christians, one of the hardest things to hold on to is that God is Trinitarian. What do we mean by that? We mean as Christians, how many gods are there? We believe there is one and only one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three persons, where the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet there is only one God. How can that be? How can there be three persons and one God? And the answer is essentially this. He's God. He is far beyond our ability as a human being to understand. We just know that's what he says about himself. And here we see some of that trinity coming forth. We see the son is the king with authority and he's judging. But we also see the father come in and he is the one that blessed us. And notice this, he prepared a kingdom for us before the foundation of the world. In other words, the father has chosen those who would be his before the foundation of the world and he prepared an eternal kingdom, an eternal place of blessing for them. One of the beliefs that we hold about God is that he is sovereign, which is just a, a fancy word of saying he's in complete and total control of everything that ever happens. And that's good news for us. That means no matter how bad it gets in history, no matter how bad of choices we make as human beings, no matter how terrible we make the world, God's plan cannot be thwarted. And what is his plan? His plan is to give an eternal, unfading, unfailing kingdom to his chosen people. Nothing can change that plan. And so we rest on this hope that it is going to be accomplished, right? Now, it gets to verse 35, and it seems like, okay, how do we know who are the sheep and who are the goats? And Verse 35 says, for, right? So Jesus talking to the sheep, he says, you're going to get this eternal, unfailing reward that is certain because the Father prepared it before the foundations of the world, before creation even happened, before history even began. He's prepared this and nothing's going to change it. Now, why do you get to be in that kingdom? And this is what Jesus says, for, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, this is where we have to read closely. At first glance, 
It looks like Jesus is saying, okay, because you did these things, you get an eternal reward. So look, look at the things that mark the sheeps from the goats at, at first, okay? So first one is this. I was thirsty, sorry, I was hungry and you gave me food. So in verse 35, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. And then in verse 37, we see the righteous say, Lord, when did any of this happen? In other words, those who are the sheep are, are they're not complaining, obviously. They're about to get eternal reward, but they're confused. They're like, Jesus, I don't remember ever giving you clothes, right? I don't remember ever feeding you. When on earth were you in prison? I, I would have showed up, but I don't remember it happening. When did this happen? And here's what, where we see another truth about it. He says this, um, and he says this uh, in verse 40. And the king will answer him. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's a truth here about the church. In other words, if you are a member of God's family, if you have put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you're a member of the church, you are adopted into a new family, God's family. And the Bible says that you are part of Jesus's body. He is the head of the church, and we are the body of the church. So what Jesus is saying is that very literally, whatever you do to one of your fellow Christians you're doing to me. That's why if we're reading in Acts, if you're familiar with the story, this, this person uh, who started off as someone who hated the church and, and, and threw them in prison and murdered a ton of them, eventually Jesus got a hold of him and made him into one of the uh, most prevalent writers of the scripture, right? And when he encounters him, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? The reason he says that is because whatever you do to your fellow Christians, you do to Jesus himself. We are his body, right? And so that's why it's so important. That's why the Bible spends so much time talking about how we treat our fellow Christians, to love one another, to give grace to one another, to serve one another, because when you do that for your fellow brothers and sisters, you are doing that for Jesus. When you don't do that, you're withholding that from Jesus, right? We don't get to say, okay, I, I get it. I want to serve Jesus, but really, like, I don't like this person. Can, can I serve the rest of Jesus' body? <laughs> but this one feels awful lot like a toe, and I, I'm not a fan, right? No, well, however you treat anyone in the body is how you treat Jesus. This is why it's so important. And what Jesus says is those who are sheep, those who are in the body, they are marked. What makes them different is how they treat one another right? And how they love one another. And we see further in the scripture that when we talk about love in the scripture, love is always shown by its actions, right? It's more than its actions, but it's always shown by its actions. That's why, um, that, that, that's why we see here, well, if you love someone, this is how you treat them. You serve them. When they're hungry, you give them something to eat. When they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. When they're naked, you clothe them. Love always shows itself in action, right? I mean, it, it's nice to say, oh, I love you. But then if your brother comes to you hungry and you're like, and, and he's starving and he's needing food, who of you would be like, you know what? I love you. Go in peace. 
your brother would be like, okay, that's nice, but do you have some food for me? Like, I need something to eat. It seems silly in reality. It's the same here. If you love someone, that shows itself in actions, right? The action isn't love, right? There, there's a way to begrudgingly serve someone where you don't really, where you aren't really loving them. But if you love them, it will show itself in your actions. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. When you see someone hungry and you fed them, and you saw them thirsty and you gave them something to drink, when you saw them in need of clothes and you clothed them, you saw them in prison and you visited them, that was you loving them in action. But more than that, you see, when we love our fellow Christians, it doesn't end there. When we love our fellow Christians, we are loving Jesus through them. All right? That's what Jesus is teaching here. Now, we go on. We're going to jump ahead to the ghosts because they were, turns out, just a surprise. So we say, uh, verse 41, Then he, Jesus once again, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Before we go on, I do want to make another option here. Notice that to the sheep, he said, this kingdom was prepared for you specifically before the foundations of the world. But look closely at this verse. Who was hell prepared for? It was not prepared for the goats. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that God does not wish for anyone to perish. That should sound familiar. It is a verse, right? God did not prepare hell for human beings. But if they completely and utterly reject him, he will allow them to go there. If that is what they choose, he will allow them to go into the punishment prepared for the devil and his angels. But that is not his intention. That is not his desire for the human beings that he has made in his image. That's why he came to earth as a human being. That's why he died for us to give us grace, because he did not wish for us to perish. No matter how much evil we did, no matter how much we rejected him, he still loved us so much that he sent his son to come and die for us so that he might save his, his people. Right? But if you utterly reject him, he will allow you to go into hell if you continue to do that and continue to do that until either you die or Jesus returns again. All right? I wanted to point that out um, because hell was not prepared for any human being. Right? Not in the same way that heaven was. So then it says this, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Now, then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you? Right? They are just as surprised. They're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? If I had seen Jesus in need, I would have gave him something, right? Like, even today, people go around, and, and often the claim is like, well, if, if God would just show me a sign, I would believe in him, but he's not. It, it, it's kind of a similar thing here. Jesus, if, if I'd have known you were there, I'd have went up to you. I'd have given you what you needed. I wouldn't have let you starve. I wouldn't let you go hungry. But Jesus' response is, listen, the way that you treated your fellow human beings is the way you treated me. Right? When you saw someone hungry and you did not feed them, you saw me hungry and didn't feed me. And notice this is not malicious action. Right? This is not someone actively being evil to another human being. This is 
neglect? Because the easy answer to any of this when Jesus, when Jesus says, when you saw someone hungry and didn't feed them, is like, well, it wasn't my job. They should have saved up enough money. They, they should have been able to pay for themselves. They were wasteful with their spending. They, they, someone else could have helped them. It, it, it's not my job, right? I, it, <laughs> I don't want to use my resources on them. This is mine. This is not my responsibility. And Jesus condemns that. You see, one of the things that happened in the beginning of time when human beings rebelled against God is we were originally created, and one of the best ways I've ever heard it summarized is that human beings were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, why that is relevant is that means that human beings were made for something beyond ourselves. We were made to bring glory to someone far greater than we are. And when we were originally created without sin, every single action and thought and deed that we did brought glory to God. But when we sinned, one of the, the classic ways through history sin has been described is it caused us to become bent, turned in on ourselves. And I want you to hold that image for yourself. Instead of being outward focused, bringing glory to someone far greater than us, we then become bent in on ourselves. We're now concerned about our own interests, our own desires, our own needs. We become selfish. Of course, to selfish human beings, you look around the world and you say, well, yeah, I didn't help them, but I had to help myself. Because look look at what's required here. I, I don't think we quite realize how much of a sacrifice Jesus is asking us to make here. Because it says this, I was hungry and you gave me no food. Now to us who can literally go down the street and walk into a place where there's coolers of food everywhere and we can get it relatively cheap, don't understand that Jesus is talking in the first century. This is not so easy. Many people he talks to are farmers. The very food they have is from a year's labor of gleaning this food. They don't always have food to spare. Many of the people Jesus is talking to are poor. They have food for themselves this day, but they don't know if they have food for themselves tomorrow. And yet Jesus is asking even them to feed the hungry. That's a sacrifice. That is risky. And he's asking them to give them drink. And, and people didn't have wardrobes of clothes, right? Now, I am in the process of getting my room added on an extra closet because when, when my fiance and I get married and she comes in, we're not going to have closet space for our clothes, obviously, and we don't even have that much clothes considering, but, but this was not a thing in the first century. You had maybe two things of clothes, right? It's not like today where we have closets and closets of clothes. We're, of, course, why, of course, we would give extra clothing because we have so much extra, and to be honest, as some of us get older, a lot of us doesn't fit anymore. We, we, we're sure it will in a couple years after our diet gets through, but it won't, Right? Of course, it's no big deal. But here, to give up a pair of clothes is a sacrifice, right? That's a big deal. The same thing with going to the sick. Of course, we visit the sick. We have tons of medicine to take care of us. Imagine going seeing the sick in the first century, where plague is running through the streets. In fact, this is one of the things that helped Christianity grow the most in the first couple of centuries. There are these series of plagues that just ravished the Roman Empire at certain areas. And it turns out where there was a significant population of Christians, the, the survival rate was much higher. Why? Because elsewhere in the Roman Empire, someone got sick, even your relative, you throw them on the street. You're like, I'm not getting sick because of you. Right? And then out on the street where they weren't taken care of, 
they, they gave in to the sickness. It was sad. But Christians were like, no, I'm going to take you in. You on the street that I don't know, I'm going to take you in. And Christians got sick because of it. But what happens is when they are taken care of, they have a higher survivability. And guess what? When Christians take care of other Christians and then they survive that illness, then the caretaker gets sick, the person who survived now has an immunity to take care. And what happened, you can trace it in history, those areas with higher Christian populations survived better because of this. They loved people even if it risked themselves dying. That's what it means to visit the sick in the first century. What does it mean to visit those in prison? Well, here's the question. Why were they in prison? Right? That's the real question. Why were these people in prison? Well, the implications here, and, and, and as it played out in Christian history, is to follow Jesus often meant imprisonment. And guess what happens if you have someone in prison for their faith and a bunch of people who aren't their relatives start showing up? The prison guards start to ask the question, why are you here? This person's in prison because of their faith. Why are you showing up? What do you believe? Right? So to show up in prison is to put yourself at risk. Right? Now that we understand the stakes, let's revisit what Jesus is saying. What he is asking, what he is, uh, what he is judging people on is essentially this. Are you willing to love your brother even if it causes you harm? Are you willing to feed your brother even if it means you go hungry? You're willing to close your brother even if it means you go naked. You're willing to visit the sick even if it means you get sick. Are you willing to visit those in prison even if it means you go to prison? That is something else entirely and oftentimes when we read this. At first we're like, of course, why would you not do this? This is simple. This is basic. But it's actually a lot riskier, right? This is what Jesus is judging. Now, once again, though, we still have our first question. Does this mean that the only way we get saved is by what we do? And this is why we have to read this closely. I want you to remember one thing. Both the sheep and the goat were surprised. Why were they surprised? Well, for two different reasons. The first was surprised, the sheep, because, well, of course. Of course I, I, I fed them. They were hungry. Of course I gave them water. They, they were thirsty. Of course I visited them in prison. They were lonely. The second was surprised for the exact opposite reason. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feed them. Why, why should I? I didn't give them water. Why should I? That's not my responsibility. I didn't visit them in prison. That's risky. What is the picture this is painting of the two different individuals? This is more than what you do and what you don't do. This is about at your core who you are, right? There's a reason they were surprised. There's a reason Jesus in this parable put the emphasis on the surprise. It's because when Jesus saves you, he doesn't just leave you as you are. He changes you, right? Now, it is not the works that saves you, but if you are saved, you will commit good works. That's, the Bible says that repeatedly. The works do not save you. Let's be clear. If you are saved, you will complete good works. Why though? Well, it's because he changes your heart. One of the things the Old Testament prophesies on is, is at the very beginning when he gives the law in Deuteronomy and he says, you need to do this and you need to don't not do this. But when you fail to keep the law, not if, when you fail to keep the law, don't worry because there's coming a new covenant. 
And in that covenant, I'm not just going to give you a law on stones. Instead, I'm going to write it on your heart. The Bible describes it as taking us our hearts of stone, our dead hearts in sin, that love evil and hate good, right? Our problem isn't just that we've done bad. Our problem is that we love bad and that we hate the good. We are dead and unable to do good, at least not true and pure good the way we're created to be, unless we're brought to life until our heart of stone gets turned into a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what is prophesied in the Old Testament when it talks about the Messiah. You will no longer have the law written on stone. I will write it on your heart. You'll no longer have hearts of stone. I will give you hearts of flesh. How does Jesus do that? He gives you his spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, a member of the Trinity, right? And Jesus gives him to us to be our spirit, right? In the very beginning of the creation story, human beings were set apart because God formed them with his own hands out of dust. But it also then says he breathed into them. Now that word breath is also the word spirit. And so life we see from the beginning of Genesis comes from God's spirit. And so what happens to those who are dead in their sin? How do they become alive? Well, once again, God breathes his Holy Spirit into us and we become alive. And now we begin to desire what is good and to hate what is evil. And slowly over time, Jesus makes us into the people when Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me, that would go, when? And when he says, well, whenever you did it for my brothers, you go, well, yeah, of course I did it. I love them. How could I not do it? You see, the end of Jesus' work in us as Christians, the end work is to make us into more loving people. And that love always shows itself in action. We become the type of person who, even if it is risky for us, we go out of our way to love others. Even when it is inconvenient for us, we love others. When we see our brothers and sisters in need and hurting, we go to comfort them and to help them, right? Now, I get it. In the meantime, in life now and here, we're not perfect yet. Many of us fail again and again to love where we should, right? But this is the end process Jesus is talking about. This is the judgment at the end where Jesus has completed the work in us, right? And right, here and now, let's be honest, we don't always love our brothers and sisters like we should. We don't always offer grace as we've been offered grace. We don't offer always offer help when it's needed. And sometimes when we see some seriously needy people around us, our first response is not, I want to love them well. It's, again, this person is really exhausting, right? Isn't that our response? Because we're not made perfect yet. But this is the end. This is what Jesus is making us into. And that's incredibly good news. I think if you're anything like me and if you've struggled and you wanted to love more, but you recognize how unloving you actually are when it gets down to it, when it inconveniences me, it's so much harder to love. When, when you've seen yourself truly, and that the Bible says that Jesus will complete this work. He will make you into a loving person. At the end, you will be a sheep if you've received the gospel. That is such good news. Yes, I'm so thankful for salvation, by the way. That's, that's the biggest thing. That my sins are forgiven is incredibly good news. The best news. But what's also good news is Jesus doesn't just forgive my sins and then leave me the same miserable sinner that I was before. He begins to change me. Thank goodness. I'm tired of being that old man. 
Why? Because I have a new heart that no longer desires those things. I actually desire to be made into a new person. And that's what Jesus is offering here. So when we look, what separates the sheep and the goats? It's more than what they do. It is the type of person that they are. The sheep have been changed from the inside out. Not only do they love people and action, but from the inside out, of course they love them. They've been changed into a more loving person. Well, the goats have rejected the gospel and they've never received that transformation. That's why when you look here, what are my main points in the scripture? What have we all been building to? This is it. Jesus rewards you for the change he works in you, but those who reject the gospel, he punishes. I want to do all that work to show you this is what the scripture is talking about. Right? What do you, what do you mean the gospel? Why? And at first reading, it looked like it was something we do to earn salvation. But when you look closely, you see that it's actually a change that has been worked on the inside. And here's the astounding thing. When we go back knowing that, and we read this verse that come, talking to the sheep, you who have been blessed by the Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here's the, here's the amazing thing about our God. He promised us eternal reward for the change that he did. He says, I'm going to reward you for being a changed person. But who changes you? God does. This is our gracious God. He freely offers up the sacrifices of his son to all. Any who put their faith in Jesus can receive the grace of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and he will make you into a new person, and he will reward you for being made into a new person. We get rewarded for the work of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But yes, if you reject the gospel, if you refuse to put your faith in Jesus, if you refuse to repent of your sins, go to Jesus for forgiveness and healing, God will let you. He will let you reap the reward of your evil actions. He will let you spend eternity in hell, if that's what you choose. But we already saw he did not make hell for human beings. That is not his intention for you. He desires for all human beings to experience the grace of the gospel in Jesus, to receive forgiveness of sins, and to day by day, moment by moment, be made more like his son Jesus in the way they love. And that's the call from this, from this parable that Jesus is telling, that it is not about what you do, it is about receiving the gospel, and when you receive it, he will change you. So what does that mean for us? It means if you haven't received the gospel yet, if you're still trying to earn Jesus's forgiveness by all the good things you did, you need to stop. It's not going to work. It's exhausting. It's tiring. And you're going to find you can come nowhere close. Instead, just receive God's grace. He's ready and willing to offer it to you. Today, this moment, put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And he will give you his spirit and he will be able to change you. Those of you who are exhausted by trying to be a better person day after day after day and yet knowing how badly you fail every time, stop putting all your effort in yourself. Turn to Jesus. He is ready and willing and wants to change you. Let him. For those of you who are Christians, this is a reminder that Jesus didn't just save you and then leave you to work out the whole getting better part by yourself. Yes, the good news is you are saved by grace alone. And what's also good news 
you are sanctified. In other words, you are made into a more loving person by grace alone. So what do we do as Christians, right? It kind of goes back to what we talked about before the sermon. Spiritual breathing. How are we changed then? Well, the Spirit changes us. And he allows us to work with him when we meet him in a scripture and in prayer and through the other Christians that he brings in our lives. He teaches us to give grace as we give grace to our fellow brothers and sisters and as they give grace to us. It turns out being put in a group of people who we normally left on our own probably wouldn't be around or like or enjoy, but learning to love them, to offer grace and to receive grace, the Holy Spirit uses that to change us, to more and more each day we become a more loving person. He uses his word, right, to not only as we read it, but as his word reads us and points out our own sinful tendencies that still remain unrepented of. He uses prayer as we pour out to God. His Spirit comes and assists us to become a more loving person. Right? All these are means that the Holy Spirit uses to change us. But remember, stop exhausting yourself trying to change yourself. It is only by grace that you are saved. And it is only by grace that you are changed. So with that thought, I want to close us in prayer as we sing our last song and worship together for this week. Father, thank you so much for preparing an eternal kingdom before the foundation of the world for us. Thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins. And thank you so much that your grace is so overflowing that you not only change us, but then you reward us for changing us, Father. Thank you for your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.